Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economics team. And good morning once again to our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Uh, good morning, Craig, and our thoughts are with you and your fellow Sydney siders, and we hope you're all staying safe and that this uh, current outbreak will soon be over. Thanks, Matthew. I think it's a little bit of a ghost town, the CBD at the moment. Border controls are back as Sydney, as Matthew highlighted, is now in the grip of that COVID outbreak. New South Wales has got an excellent contract tracing record to date, having kept ahead of the spread of the disease so far. And Premier Berejiklian has won praise for keeping Sydney from widespread lockdowns. Matthew, I'd love to get your take on the current situation. Well, as with everyone else, Craig, it seems to me that we're on a knife edge, notwithstanding the fact that New South Wales have done an excellent job on the contact tracing. The Delta variant can quickly outpace contact tracing, we know. It also appears that we're really uh, unable to contain the spread of the Delta variant, given our current hotel quarantine system. So, Generally speaking, it looks to me like we're going to continue to have intermittent outbreaks of the disease. We're going to have ongoing lockdowns, if not currently in Sydney, uh, in the future. And we're going to have state border closures until we've rolled out enough vaccines to achieve herd immunity, which won't be for another 12 months if we don't pick up our vaccination rate. Yeah, quite downbeat there, mate. But uh, I suppose currently the Sydney restrictions are fairly modest, with the exception of travel outside of metropolitan Sydney for those residents of the restricted Sydney areas. Certainly, there's been some reprieve as well from Sydney peak hour traffic. But what if, as you suggest, we go into a complete lockdown? How much damage would that do to the economy? Well, quite a bit, Craig. Uh, you probably know that Greater Sydney represents about a quarter of the Australian economy, and our estimates based on past lockdowns in uh, Sydney and Melbourne indicate that a two-week lockdown would generate quite a strong hit of about two and a quarter, two and a half percent to the Sydney economy, and that would knock off uh, around about half a percent off national GDP. If that were the case, it would mean that the national economic recovery would slow to less than a percent over the June quarter. And just to reinforce what we could expect, Craig, this week we saw the damage done by the Victorian outbreak in the labour market data for late May and early June. And that data showed that Victoria had shed over 2% of jobs in the two weeks to June the 5th. And that's a period overlapping the Melbourne lockdown. But of course, these impacts on the economy are in circumstances where the outbreaks are contained to sit in Melbourne. We have yet to experience a blowout across state borders, but with the potency of the Delta variant, this is a real possibility and presents a significant risk to the outlook while the vast majority of the population are yet to be vaccinated. Yeah, and that hit to the Victorian employment numbers just off the back of having strong numbers uh, just a week or so ago. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic impacts from the New South Wales COVID outbreak that is shaping our investment outlook. Matthew, you alluded to the potential need for state border closures a couple of times now. Queensland and WA have been very quick to respond to outbreaks in Melbourne and Sydney by closing down their borders and have come in for some sharp criticism from the southern states and federal government. Do you think the Queensland and Western Australian governments have been trigger happy in shutting their borders to the detriment of their state and national economies? Well, quite contrary, Craig. The state border closures, in my opinion, are necessary to ensure that the state 
and national economies keep functioning at their maximum potential when an outbreak is occurring. By that, what I mean is that although border closures cut off some forms of economic activity, for example, in Queensland, interstate tourism, uh, particularly in the period of school holidays, is an obvious example. But what it actually does, those border closures, it preserves the majority of economic activity, which is not only good for the Queensland and WA economies, but for the national economy as well. You know, Craig, that during COVID, as in the GFC, Australia has benefited from strong demand for our bulk commodity exports. This is continuing and, and preliminary trade data out this week showed that the strong surplus we've been experiencing is continuing thanks to iron ore and coal exports. So it is imperative that we keep our mines open. Now, a large share of the mines workforce is fly in, fly out. So an outbreak in Brisbane or Perth, where that fly in, fly out's occurring, could threaten the workforce of the mines. And the last thing we need now is a closure of our mining sector. Yeah, really interesting sort of take on that one, Matthew, one I haven't seen before. And I suppose I'd like to now turn our attention offshore, if that's okay. It wasn't that long ago that the two of us were discussing the enormity of Biden's $1.9 trillion American rescue plan. As it stands now, we have around $4 trillion worth of US stimulus from the American job and family plans. Will this spending see the light of day? Well, the first thing to remember, Craig, is that Biden's American Jobs and Families plans are partially funded by around $1.5 trillion of revenue raising policy, whereas the Biden American Rescue Plan, the one that we've just had, that $1.9 trillion spending was largely unfunded. The net spending of the Jobs and Families plan is therefore around $1.6 trillion, not that $4 trillion headline spending. But nonetheless, $1.6 trillion is still a very big number. So the second thing to bear in mind is that the current plans are spread over a very long time, over a decade, whereas the recent rescue plan policies hit mainly in the first half of the year. Having said that, the Jobs and Families plan is front-loaded and would represent an average annual injection of fiscal stimulus of around three-quarters of a percent of US GDP each year for the next five years. Finally, though, and this is perhaps the key, Craig, it's highly unlikely that Biden will get the full package through Congress. At the moment, the latest bipartisan offer on the jobs plan package is for a spending of around $1.2 trillion. That's almost half the original spend in the package of $2.2 trillion. The Republicans have balked at raising the corporate tax rate and have proposed a rise in gasoline taxes as a substitute to pay for the spending. But a rise in gasoline taxes would hit low-income families the most as higher gasoline prices are passed through the petrol bowsers. And so that will be resisted by progressive Democrats. Yeah, it sounds like there's going to be a deal done by Biden here, Matthew. What would be the likely impact of this fiscal spending to the world's largest economy? Well, of course, Craig, that does depend on how much of the package eventually gets passed by Congress. Now, the packages are going to go to a reconciliation bill and thereby they'll pass the need for Republican support. But a watered down version of the package will be needed, I think, to appease moderate Democrats. Our scenario is about 70% of the current package gets through. That would see US GDP lift by around 40 basis points, 0.4 percentage points next year, and another 20 basis points or 0.2 percentage points in 2023. Now, this would raise US GDP growth to 4.5% next year, which would be over twice its trend rate. 
and to 2.5% in 2023. Now, these impacts are substantial, but far from the impact of the American Rescue Plan, which we've estimated to have increased US GDP this year alone by two percentage points. Yeah, amazing. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the possible economic implications of Biden's American rescue packages. Matthew, with such a wall of money being inserted into the US economy, and indeed the global economy, will this lead to a paradigm shift for inflation? These packages on their own, I don't think so. Our simulations suggest that the packages will have a material impact on inflation. It'll lift the PCE deflator, that's the inflation deflator that's targeted by the Federal Reserve, it'll lift that by about 0.2 percentage points over the coming five years, which would see PCE inflation hover around 2.5% from next year to around about 2027. Now, that's above the Fed's 2% target rate of inflation, but well within the tolerance range, I think, of inflation, the Fed would allow in terms of its overshoot to compensate for the last decade or so of inflation undershooting 2% in the US economy. Okay, then. So maybe let's look at it from a different angle. With fiscal spending at such record levels, Matthew, what are the chances then that the Fed will break their recent ranks and alter the loose monetary policy stance? Well, actually, my view, Craig, is that the balance of risks is potentially to the contrary that there could be a paradigm shift in inflation that you alluded to in your previous question, but it's not dependent just on the new package getting through. Look, the US recovery, Craig, has been, as we know, reliant on fiscal stimulus. And as a consequence, the ramp up in US government debt means that the current Fed purchases of US government bonds are key to keeping US Treasury yields from really from exploding. The risk is that the Fed maintains loose monetary policy in order to keep rates on government debt low and so as to not undermine the economic recovery. The outcome, I believe, could be an eventual outbreak inflation beyond 3%, for example. Now, the Fed may even tolerate an extended period of inflation above 3%, justifying it on the grounds that it's compensating for those low inflation rates that we saw in the post-GFC decade, Craig. Hence, we could see inflation I think, become entrenched at a rate well above the Fed's stated target of 2%. Interesting. Uh, Overall then, Matthew, when this is all taken into account, the stimulus but increased tax rates, how should investors position for a Biden package? Well, my view is that the markets have already factored in a scenario close to our 70% of packages being passed, Craig. That alone added 30 basis points to uh, US 10-year treasuries yields and around 20 basis points to uh, US 10-year break-even inflation rates. But as I said, that's probably fully priced into current markets. If I got the full package through, we would expect to see a further 10 basis point upside to treasury yields and about a five basis point upside to 10-year break-even rates. But more generally, uh, there is a potentially upside to both US bond yields and break-even inflation rates as the Fed sits on its latest guidance and markets once more, I think, will start to turn their attention to the possibility of an inflation breakout. Thanks, Matthew, for that uh, update. We'd like to squeeze a lot into our Q pods here at QIC. 
In summary, New South Wales is facing its scariest period of the pandemic to date and a possible 2.3% hit to its economy, leading to a 0.5% impact to our national GDP. And with Australia still benefiting from commodity exports, the hard border policies of Queensland and WA that many are critical of is, however, keeping the mines open, which of course benefits the national economy. And the devil is in the detail for Biden's dual fiscal package plans, with the headline figures being spread over multiple terms with offsetting tax hikes and subject to Congress. Still, the impact might just be a paradigm shift for US inflation with sustained entrenched inflation supported by the Fed. I'm Craig Valenzuela for QIC's QPod. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend.